0: Is this thing on?
1: It's recording.
0: We would like to acknowledge the Gadigal people of the Eora nation upon whose ancestral lands our city campus now stands. We would also like to pay respect to the elders, both past and present, acknowledging them as the traditional custodians of knowledge for this land.
1: Alright, welcome back to Season 3, Episode 9 of The Bar. I'm Perina.
0: And I'm Brayden. And it's lovely to have you dear listeners back again this week. Um, still sort of reeling from last week's episode not going to lie what about you Karina?
1: Still a bit starstruck as well yeah. like I, you know I feel like I'm on cloud 9 I can't believe but you know I've still been listening back to the episode from last week mainly just listening to Michael Kirby talk not yeah. me or you um <laughs> but it, it's just been amazing to hear like his wisdom and his opinions on everything we asked him
0: Yeah and also you know just the words coming from him himself mm-hmm. we've read so many things about Kirby J
1: and as, his judgments and then to yeah. see the man who's actually written them
0: yeah so it's uh you know it's 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 kind of a, a starstruck moment as you said for me as well but you know if you haven't listened check it out um but if you have we have another exciting episode for you again this week mm-hmm. um our guest is uh in an, in an area of law that is very uh interesting to me on a personal level and so i'm very excited um, Prina, you listen to a lot of music as well, don't you?
1: I do, I do. I have Spotify Premium, so you oh. know I'm serious about my music. <laughs> <And> Spotify <laughs> wants to sponsor me, <laughs> and you know, of course, this podcast is on Spotify as of well. Of course, so. and Apple
0: Music for all you um interesting people out there. Yeah,
1: all well, you know, interesting, concerning, whatever your choice of word. Is.
0: It's kind of like shopping at Coles, really.
1: It is. <laughs> Woolies is the fresh food people place, so why aren't you going there?
0: Spot, oh, exactly. Anyway, not to not to sell ourselves out. We're not getting paid for any of these endorsements. We are not I don't know
1: why we're pushing our opinions. Not
0: yet. Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. not yet. <laughs> Good wording there, not yet.
0: Regardless, we uh we shall move on to our weekly specials. Firstly, we've had Clarkship Seminar series well and truly kicking off um over the past week and a bit. Yeah. That's been awesome. Um, I guess in this position for me, at least, I'm seeing sort of both sides of it. One, I'm approaching, you know, the time it is for me to apply for clerkship. So I'm paying attention, but I'm also, you know, assisting in my capacity as a counsellor. So it's uh, it's fun. Um, the Chris team put in a lot of work um, behind the scenes to make it work. Uh, and I highly encourage you to check out the remainder of the clerkship seminars, uh, if you haven't already, especially if you're in your um, second last year, you know, I guess anywhere between third and fifth year is kind of good there. Um, even if you were a first or second year and just wanted to get an understanding of commercial law, I would, you know, and how clerkships work, I would highly recommend attending those. Um, you know, all the info is on our Facebook page. So have a look at that. Um, but as well as this, um, something I didn't really get a chance to talk about last week was I had um, Easter Sunday lunch with the fam um, at a rowing club. I think it was Abbotsford. Um, oh, okay. But I could be wrong there. I wasn't How really was paying it? attention. I kind of just tagged along. Um, and it was nice. It was nice. It was my immediate family as well as my aunt and uncle on my dad's side, my cousins um, who, were, who were their kids, and um, my nan, of course, mm. the OG. So, you know, it was nice to catch up with, with everyone. And I feel like I've been buried in assignments over the past couple of weeks. So it was it was yeah. kind of, it was good to, you know, just relax a little bit on Easter over the over the Easter break.
1: Yeah, to get, like, that well-deserved break as well from life, really. Mm.
0: And, uh, you know, we're actually being inundated with public holidays at the moment, I think.
1: Yeah.
0: Just had Anzac Day.
1: Yeah. So yeah. many on Monday as well, which is, you know, we know it's the worst day of the week.
0: Yeah, well, I actually work Monday and Friday. And so I've missed a Me lot too. of work this this uh, this month. Yeah. Because of all the public holidays. The
1: Mondays, I'm not getting paid and yeah. I'm... Bank account's crying a
0: bit. But. <laughs> oh mine is certainly crying as well, don't you worry. <laughs> um and I guess the final thing for my weekly specials is I'm uh, um, looking forward to char- charity trivia. I believe it is tomorrow night. Oh yeah. Yeah,
1: so um I think it's double
0: court. denim? Yeah, maybe? double yeah. denim. Um so dress up, have a good time. It's always it's always fun. Um, you know, to so, look good and win a trivia game as well. You know, what's yeah, what's to love? Last trivia I went to a I think that was like a, a singing portion,
1: Ooh. and I
0: stole the microphone. Well, not stole it, but I volunteered for my team.
1: Would you sing?
0: Um, I can't remember off the top of my head. It's in my Insta highlights actually, but ah, okay. um, I'll, I'll figure it out. It was it was something. It, it was it was something like really well known, like right. a really cliche like karaoke song. I can't remember though. Yeah.
1: Clearly not that well known if you can't remember it. <laughs>
0: I just don't listen to that trash.
1: Oh, <laughs> <laughs> we're talking about music, and you know our guest today is a bit musically inclined, and you're calling music
0: trash. I'm talking pop. No, no, oh, I'm being okay, facetious okay. here. Um, I won first and foremost, and the subscriber to the the train of thought of don't hate people for liking things. If someone likes something, even if it's high school musical original soundtrack on mm-hmm. repeat, you know, like it. I'm not going to judge you Unless
1: but, uh, it's country music or death metal. <laughs> then that is where we draw the line. See,
0: I would still even, um, you know, sort of... You'd
1: condone ...regretfully
0: that? allow people to listen. I
1: think You're a lot more accepting than I am, right?
0: <laughs> actually, there are some good country songs. Wasn't Taylor Swift originally a country singer?
1: She was, I think. Ledger but now evolved. she's gone more into pop.
0: Yeah. No, and don't get me wrong, I do love good... I do love some good pop. Mm. I actually love... Taylor Swift, 1989, one of the one of my oh, favourite yeah, albums. Yeah, yeah. Amazing. So yeah, I am I am just kidding with the with the trash comment. But Me too. <laughs> you know.
1: <laughs> no, I love country and I love death metal rock. Clearly. I listen to it like all the time. Was that
0: what your headphones were doing in the elevator?
1: Yeah. <laughs> all yeah. that loud. Yeah, like you know, the blaring noise. That's oh, what that oh, was. Oh, oh. I think the blood coming out of my ear as well.
0: What was that? <laughs> oh my god. I don't think <laughs> it's literal death metal. It's not gonna kill you.
1: No, it's literally gonna kill <laughs>
0: Anyway, Prina, tell us about your weekly specials.
1: Um. Well, I didn't really do anything during the Easter break other than just sort of hang out with my family and talk to my sister heaps, you know, because mm. she's had school holidays. I'm on my uni break. Um, and to get that sort of time where we're both at home a lot was great. Mm. We, got, we went out a lot as well. We got our nails done. It was a fun time with my sister. And then something else I'm looking forward to is... My best friend that actually lives in Canada now mm. is coming back uh, to visit oh. for a couple of months. So, yeah, I go pick her up um, in a few days. It's like a 6 a.m. flight, so I'm going to be, yeah. you know, killing myself on wow. the way there because I'm going to be so tired. But, um, yeah, like sort of planning out, planning out like all the things I want to do with her and what she wants to do while she's here, all the shopping she wants to do as well because <sighs> I think brands like Stussy and Glassons, they, they're not – In Canada, so... Wait, what? Yeah, or, like, if she wants to buy, like, any Stussy shirt, so, like, for example, she can't get them shipped there. Yeah. They cost, like, double what they... Or triple what they would cost if she got, like, one shirt.
0: Even across the border from the States?
1: Yeah. No, like, it's not... It doesn't make sense. Like, she showed me, like, a breakdown of, like, how much it would cost, and I was like... Wow. You might as well just come here and buy whatever you want.
0: That's actually crazy. I thought that us in Australia... Would typically pay some of the highest prices in the world, especially more than Canada. But New
1: Zealand as well actually
0: pay a lot. Yeah, New Zealand. I can imagine they would pay a lot as well. Um,
1: But yeah, I found it weird that she couldn't get her Stussy stuff.
0: Yeah, that that does seem interesting. But who knows? Um, I think there are a lot of intricacies to the uh, The North American economy that i'm not very familiar with
1: no i'm not well worse in that yet but yeah i don't think i want to be because i'm not trying to buy anything from there
0: you're not going to move to the states either
1: no <laughs> not not at the moment i'm not thinking about that
0: <laughs> yeah look i wouldn't move to the states at the moment that's all no. i'll say about that <laughs> yeah, it doesn't seem very appealing <laughs> but then again like negative news spreads a lot faster than positive, positive. news and so yeah. we probably have a bit of a slanted view of what it looks like over in the United States versus here because we actually live here. Yeah. And we're not just seeing headlines.
1: That's true. Although we
0: are seeing headlines as well.
1: We are, but we aren't. Yeah. It's a bit of both. <laughs> All right. So with that, we will move on to this week's Legal Scoop. So, Brayden, it was your turn today, wasn't it?
0: Yes. Uh, and this week's Legal Scoop is something that I've actually learnt um, fairly recently. Mm-hmm. And it is particularly interesting to me because I do um, – have sort of an inkling that I want to become an advocate at some stage, so we shall see how that turns out uh, in the future. But uh, as I'm sure our dear listeners know, there are many, many abbreviations um, that are used within the law and our legal studies. Uh, and one that's always perplexed me, at least, is the titles of Queen's Counsel slash Senior Counsel. Um, So if, like me, looking to be an advocate at some stage, listen up, because I'll briefly break down the history of these titles and you'll never have to learn anything about them again. Ooh, okay. So, firstly, with the concept of of senior barristers um, as a whole, a limited number of senior barristers receive what's known as silk, um, which is becoming a queen's council or a senior council. Uh, And this is a mark of outstanding ability. So both types are collectively known as senior council. And they are also colloquially known as silks, which I just said before. And this is because um, senior council robes typically include a gown made of silk versus junior council who makes it out of cotton. Right. So that's one interesting fact there already. Yeah. I have
1: more. Oh, okay. One of many then.
0: <laughs> so, yes, before a barrister is appointed senior council, they must possess what's known as a high degree of skill and learning, integrity and honesty, independence, diligence, and experience. Um, so, yeah, that's a little background on, on senior council as a whole, um, your senior your senior barristers. Um, and so moving on from this into the titles of QC and SC, um, originally Queen's Council was the default, um, but this was changed for new admissions in New South Wales in 1993 um, to senior council with other states following in the years following that. Um, so really, um, this has actually somewhat been rolled back across Australia, though, some jurisdictions um, offering the choice of Queen's Council or Senior Council. Um, for example, Victoria, um, they started doing this in 2014. Uh, and Queensland actually abolished Senior Council in uh, 2013 and went back to QC. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's an interesting thing. And the debate around it, because um, Typically, it, it, it's just a, the name. Like, there's no actual difference between Sydney Council and Queen's Council, just the one that the council itse- themselves have chosen. Um, but the Victorian bar chairman, uh, Jim Peters, well, in 2014, uh, when the Victoria, like Victoria brought back QCs, um, the chairman, Jim Peters, Queen's Council, uh, explained that the reason for this choice is the designation of QC is a mark of distinction recognised globally. Um, Queen's Council. And you know, I would agree with that. He goes on to say, the offer of choice by the Attorney General assists advocates in competing internationally and in the domestic Australian level. So yeah, I think that's somewhat good reasoning. But I guess the important question is, perina would you choose Senior Council or Queen's Council?
1: I think I'd choose Senior Council. I mean, Queen's Council, actually, because that's what um, Jim Peters said as well right like with the reasoning that it is globally recognized as well and you want something that is known by everyone rather than having that confusion of sort of distinguishing both of them so i would agree with the reasoning i think
0: yeah it's funny i i was always growing up the type of guy that was like why do we have the queen on our money yeah. Like why are we a commonwealth? Like why are we not a republic? Why is our queen head of state? All that mm. stuff. I was very anti UK. Sorry yeah. to all of my um British brethren. <laughs> Sorry to all the jabs. <laughs> Um, My good friend Jack from Brighton. You know who you are. <laughs> um, but yeah, but over the years, I and especially since coming to law school and reading about you know we read English judgments mm. and the evolution of the common law and. Look, I'm not saying that I support colonial Britain um, at all Um, but what I would say is there's a lot of um, legal tradition there, like centuries of legal tradition Mm. Um, and I kind of like the idea of that. Um, So I would have always said SC for the longest time, now I'm kind of undecided, might go for QC but by the time I become a barrister will QC be the option or will it be KC?
1: Oh. Yeah, 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 because, you know, you're bringing up that, like, notion of um, colonisation as well. Like, that does make a big difference because you do have to separate both of these different elements and then you also have to take into account that the law that was made back then is still so prevalent in a lot of Commonwealth countries. So it's either almost like, do you entirely dissect and separate everything or do you sort of slowly nitpick what you want to separate out? And then eventually, mm. you know, it's all just Australian to some yeah. point. Yeah.
0: And look, we'll see the evolution of the Republic debate, I'm sure, throughout yeah. our lifetimes. Um, it'll be interesting to see where that goes. It would be, yeah. Um, but I also think it's kind of cool. Queen's Council sounds like you're the personal council of the Queen.
1: It does. It sounds very, like, personalised and yeah. special.
0: And there's not many of them around. Like, sure... There's lots if you pull them all up together, mm. but I think you know the, the, there's not many who get admitted every year. So you're part of quite a a select group of individuals. The prestigious
1: people, yeah. yeah.
0: So it's um, it's really cool. I guess it's interesting, uh, definitely. Yeah, I might ask my uh, advocate mentor. Um,
1: oh what, yeah, because yeah. he
0: is a silk and he chose senior council.
1: Oh, is that what sort of drove you for this week's legal scoop then?
0: No, I just saw QC, SC, and I've known like that they're both silks, but I just wanted to read a bit more into the history behind it. Um, but it'll be interesting to see what he has to say about it. Um, you know, Was it... I don't... I think he was admitted in the late 90s, so it was probably an option then.
1: Mm,
0: okay. Oh, no, sorry. It was not an option. 1993 is when they <sighs> scrapped
1: it. So, oh, okay. And
0: they haven't brought it back in New South Wales yet, right. so he didn't have the choice. But I would love to hear, if he had the choice, what mm. he would
1: choose. Yeah, you know, like what his choice would be.
0: Yeah, you know, we'll go do some primary research for you guys. Primary research. <laughs> 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 uh, anyway, that's uh, that's all I wanted to say for the legal scoop.
1: It's an amazing legal scoop, though. Um, so thank you for that.
0: No worries. So hopefully when you guys see QC and SC or uh, Notices of Motion or wherever you might read them, um, you know, now you can actually know what they are.
1: definitely and I mean well you know Amazing legal scoop, but we can't forget about our guest for today. Oh, I
0: certainly have not forgotten, don't
1: you worry. So our guest for today's episode is the principal of a leading tech, media, and entertainment law firm called Brett Orton Solicitors. They're known to represent up-and-coming businesses and visionaries in fields such as entertainment, media, tech, and arts. Their clientele is very impressive and includes the likes of The Kid Leroy, Guy Sebastian, Arne Doe. Jessica Mayboy, Lord, Amy Shark, and Gang of Feuds, just to name a few. With that, let's welcome Brett Oten. Hello, Brett, and welcome to The Bar, Season 3. We hope you're going to have a good time today, and thank you for joining us.
2: Uh, my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me, and I too hope that I'll have a
1: good time today. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the first and most important question we ask all our guests is, who would you take to The Bar and why?
2: Okay, so um, I very rarely drink. So bars for me are not drinking. They're all about seeing uh, rock and roll. And um, I don't know if I would, my favourite band, my favourite bar band is a band from Providence, Rhode Island called Tick. I don't know if I would take them to the bar, but I would hope that when I arrived in the bar, they were already there. And I would take to the bar my fellow DTIC fans, of which there are not very many. And I would also take to the bar a whole lot of people who I think should be and following our trip to the bar would be fans of DTIC. So there we are. That's a fantastic answer, answer. actually. Yeah,
0: I like that a lot. Um, Yeah, the good thing about that question is it's quite open for, you can literally
1: take anyone yeah, to the
0: yeah like we've had our answers i'll take my family to the bar um i'll take this i think you said gandhi
1: yeah you take gandhi. gandhi
0: to the bar so it's nice to see how people interpret this question that's probably i don't I'd, i hate to say it, it might be my favorite answer so far
1: oh wow well
0: that, uh,
2: you sorry. know it's all downhill from
0: here so. <laughs> but this is purely because i am such a huge fan of uh of live music especially australian music so but, you know, we'll, we'll keep my fanboying to a minimum. Um, how about uh, we could... I
2: think i ramp it up to maximum.
1: <laughs> For this interview, yeah, definitely.
0: Look, we'll see. Um, but, yeah, how about, um, Brett, you give us a sort of overview of your career. So, you know, going from university today, days um, to sort of what inspired you to be uh, a music lawyer and then, you know, how you got to where you are today.
2: Okay. Um, I'll try to make this as brief and as... Uh... Uh, as less boring as possible, but um, I uh, went to uni at the University of Queensland in Brisbane. Um, When I was there, I don't think that I uh, knew that uh, music lawyers or entertainment lawyers existed, so I had no aspirations in that regard, but uh, I have been, for as long as I can remember, a huge... um, music fan, going to see music, buying records, talking about records, reading music magazines. And that was my predominant kind of social interest at university, then I moved to Sydney and it remained my predominant social interest. I worked at Baker and McKenzie, um, straight out of uni. Um, Predominantly, I did a rotation in banking and finance and then I started working in intellectual property. Uh, While I was there, I was going out to see a lot of music and I wanted to get more involved in music because I loved it so much and I'm not a musician. So I started writing for the street press, as it then was, Free Music Press, and that led to a lot of other writing for Rolling Stone and various other uh, magazines while I was working as a lawyer, and that led to me managing a band and all of those things um Uh, allowed me to meet a lot of people in the music industry and have a lot of friends in the music industry. And I concluded that um, if I could do legal work for those people in an area that I was personally really excited about, that that would be something a little less like work and that that would be something I'd prefer to do. I, I have nothing bad to say about Baker McKenzie. I loved my time there, I loved my time in a big firm. I worked for um, some really great people who were also great lawyers and I would never have had the confidence to set up my own firm um, had I not been trained by such excellent lawyers. So, But for me, um, uh, working in a big firm did not seem like a long-term solution Uh, that would contribute to my happiness, and so uh, I left there after three years and set up my own firm, which, you know, objectively is quite stupid, but um, (laughs) it worked out okay.
1: I think that's amazing to, you know, use different firms and different areas of law as a stepping stone to go into what you're actually passionate about, which ends up being tech, entertainment, music law.
2: Yeah, so we began, or we we began, um, there's... 13 people in my firm now, but to begin with, it was just me. Um, It began as just a music firm and it's broadened over the years. We still do a lot of music work, but we do a lot of film and TV work, a lot of advertising work, a lot of non-music talent work. So whether that be TV presenters or influencers, and then a lot of startup stuff as well. So our firm tends to represent creators of one kind, or another, whether they be entrepreneurs or, or, or musicians or writers and directors. Um, we, we really find the work really interesting and we like the sensibilities of the clients.
0: Mm. Definitely. Are you like me in the sense where you're really passionate about the arts, but don't have a creative bone in your body? Like that's that's how I feel. Like I love watching film, I love music um, but I could never create it. If that makes sense, I, I think that's
2: a very fair assessment of me. Um, <laughs> I do love, you know, um, I, I love art, you know, music, film, TV. Uh, I I, I, um, I don't have those abilities myself. I did. Um, I was heavily involved in the radio station FBI as a founding board member. And um, maybe that's, I I did a comedy podcast or a comedy show there for 10 years. I don't know how funny it was. Maybe they just (laughs) let me do it because I was on the board. Uh, (laughs) But that would be probably the extent of my creative talents. Um, But I'm very fortunate to, uh, given my interests, have been able to, you know, turn that somehow into a job.
0: Mm. Yeah, Um, I think that's really cool.
1: Yeah, definitely. And And, I guess... Sorry, do you want to go? That's okay. <laughs> um, I guess Well, while we're talking about your job, I was sort of just wondering what is it that you enjoy most about it?
2: Um, I think that's changed over the years. Um, at Easter, my firm uh, turned 30. Um, obviously, I was a child genius when I started. I was <laughs> young. Um, and I think to, to begin with, I mean, the whole idea I set it up, the whole reason I set it up was that I wanted to do a very particular kind of work and I wanted to do it in a very particular way. And I was not gonna have that opportunity at the firm I was working with and nor would anyone doing um, entertainment give me, uh, well, they didn't need me. So it's not that they wouldn't give me an opportunity. They didn't need to give me an opportunity. They're doing quite fine without me. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I set it up to do the exact work that I wanted to do in the way that I wanted to do it, and that was, um, and that worked out, and that was incredibly satisfying. You know, mm-hmm. later in my career, um, uh, as I um, grew older and hopefully became more mature and had children and and other demands, you know, running my own firm gave me the flexibility to uh, spend time where I wanted to spend it, and. Uh, Pre COVID, for uh, like for 15 years, I worked four days a week when that was not particularly uh, a common thing to do, and I did that so I could spend more time with my kids. and And so, I still really love uh, the work that I do, and I love the colleagues that I work with. But I also, at this stage of my career, really like the fact that uh, if I don't want to, you know, come to work. on a day to do something that I think is more important that day that I don't have to ask anyone's permission to do that. As long as the work gets done.
0: Yeah, exactly. Well, the beauty of being your own boss. I guess more of my business brain in this regard, but when you set up your, your firm originally, did you know that there was a market there for the work that you wanted to do? I'm assuming you would have, you know, built upon the connections you were describing earlier and known that, okay, if I start this up, there will be clients to come. Or was that like a big risk? That you had to
2: take uh i thought there was a really obvious market uh to do things in a certain way so i, I might be getting too far into the weeds here but um when i set up this firm in the early 90s the music that I was going to see and the people, the relationships that I had were all in kind of independent music and punk rock and that kind of stuff, which was not really served by the mainstream music industry at that point. Uh, And, you know, Australia is a small market and entertainment is a small niche within a small market. And so the entertainment firms in Australia have always typically been pretty small and, At that time, the predominant entertainment firms were all small firms that were saying, we're small, but we're just like a big firm. And I thought there was an opportunity for somebody to say, because the people who I knew in bands, um, you know, they knew that they needed legal advice, but they were quite intimidated by what they saw as the kind of you know lawyer from central casting of like a serious person in a suit who spoke language that they didn't understand and i thought there was a great opportunity to say i'm a lawyer from a small firm and i am absolutely nothing like Mm -hmm. a big firm and i will not wear a suit and you'll see me at shows and i'll meet you at a cafe and I will be able to talk to you about your favorite records and I'll talk to you about who produced them and who they're influenced by. And and that's what I set out to do. And and in the end, that's all window dressing. Like that's all really great, but unless you're a good lawyer, um, that wouldn't help you. But it certainly helped me kind of build the relationships that I, you know, partly already had and wanted to build, by pitching myself to people who did who knew they needed a lawyer but didn't necessarily want one, that I was not the kind of lawyer that they were scared of. Mm. Um, and the other thing that happened around that time, which has nothing to do with me but was pretty fortuitous, is that all, all the music that I was into existed outside the mainstream and then in 1992, Nirvana broke and suddenly the kind of music that every major label wanted to sign was the kind of artist that I represented. And not only that, but there was nobody working in big record companies who understood that music. So all of my friends who, you know, booked at the Lansdowne Hotel or managed some band that no one had ever heard of or wrote for the street press, all got jobs at major record companies. And so a whole generation of people moved up together. And I was lucky enough to be the lawyer to a lot of the artists that went from being, you know, not allowed in the front door to being, uh, you know, actively pursued. And so, you know, right place, right time for that.
0: Mm.
1: Yeah, I think it speaks um, a lot to sort of the business aspect of setting up your own firm and then Um, Looking at that gap in the market, and then also tending to the needs of your clients, as you were talking about. The
2: other thing I would say about that is, is I didn't really think it was risky. You know, I didn't go out and get a beautiful office and hire staff. My idea was, look, this hopefully will work, but it might not work, and I need to uh, build it in a way that if it doesn't work, I can just close the doors and. I was, you know, uh, confident slash arrogant enough to think that I could go and get another job in a big law firm, and if it didn't work, that I would lose whatever money I didn't make in the period that I was not working in a big law firm. But it wasn't really about money for me. It was about wanting to do something that I really wanted to do. So, you know, I took 100% pay cut, and uh, that was fine. I didn't have any kind of commitments or dependents or a mortgage, and so... For me, at that stage of my life, if this is really boring, please tell me to move on. No. But at that stage of my life, the cost of failure was I'd need to go and get a job. And so that was a risk that I was very happy to take.
0: Yeah, it's not like you went out and, you know, as you said, bought. Big I, was not, I did not have
2: an office in Grosvenor Place, you know. So
0: much like much like a, a band itself, did you start in your own garage? I, I started in a room of a share house. <laughs> humble
1: beginnings
0: yeah and look i think also what you were saying before speaks towards the importance of accessibility within the law and so Mm. this is something that a lot of us cover in our early years at uni where you know not only do you have like a lot a lot of the focus is on on multicultural access and language barriers and things like that and and cost but it's also important to have the perception of you know, a lawyer is, is supposed to be someone you can speak to about anything, not someone who's going to, like, rip you off or something like that, um, you know, or give you poor advice or make you go to this big law firm in the city um, when, you know, and, and speak in a language, as you said, that you don't understand. So well, I, think, I think
2: that's really important and I think that um, some people, hopefully a declining percentage of people li- like to be... You, you know, are somewhat pompous in their regard for themselves as a lawyer. And, and, and they like the fact that maybe their language is opaque and and I, I couldn't disagree with that more. To me, if I give my client a contract and they can't understand it and they can't use it as a tool, for, then, then I haven't done a very good job. And, and the other thing is that I think of being a lawyer as like being a tradesman and a tradesperson. You know, if your toilet doesn't work, you call a plumber. If you've got a legal problem, you call a lawyer. And and your job as a lawyer should be to do the best job that you can do for your client to serve their purposes, not to bamboozle them and, and, and not give them something that's useful to them. If you can't give your client something useful, then I'm not sure what you're there for.
0: Mm. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, I think it's very important. And I think... To build that sort of uh, client lawyer relationship that you've been talking about throughout um, our call so far is, you know, really important to make sure that one, you have those positive outcomes for the client, being able to use contracts as tools, an example that you just gave, but also two, that they, you know, firstly are happy with the experience that they had, and secondly that, you know, they'll also tell people.
2: Well, um, that's it. You know, like I think as a lawyer, you know, if we're talking from a business point of view. Your job or your goal should not yeah. be to make, you know, it is, it is a business at the end of the day. I've got 12 people that work for me and I've got to pay them all and I've got to pay all my other costs as well. So, you know, it's not a charitable enterprise. Um, but your goal should not be to make the most money out of a client when they walk through the door. Your Absolutely goal should not. be to do such a good job for your client that they give you work for 20 or 30 years and tell everybody else to come to you. That That's how you build that's how you build a career and that's how you build a business in my opinion. Mm, And you can achieve that by good, you know, good work. So that's the best best advertisement that you will ever have is, um, is doing good work and people telling other people that you do good work Mm. and that you're a good person, you know, like the, the, I mean, I, I I act for some extremely sophisticated clients, but I also act for a lot of clients who, who wouldn't know, um, a good lawyer from a bad lawyer. So what they're judging you on is, do they feel like you are helping them? And do they feel like they can trust you? And do they feel like you're doing good work for a fair price? You know, they don't care about, you know, what case law you looked at before you talked to them or your technical drafting skills that they neither know nor care about that. So. Um, they're judging you on completely other criteria. Of course, there are some extremely sophisticated clients who look at you in a different way. And and one of the great joys of my job is I get to work with people across those spectrums. Mm.
1: And, yeah, I think one thing that always remains paramount is, you know, how loyal and how great your relationship is with your client. Because, as you said, it goes on for 20 years. It could go on for longer than that. You don't want to. Yeah, hopefully. Yeah, hopefully. Yeah.
0: Yeah, you um you actually act for a wide range of clients. I might have had a bit of a perusal of your online profile before. I saw that, yeah. yeah, and um, you know, a lot of artists, but also a lot of organisations and festivals. And I guess um a bit of a specific question, maybe um, but how was twenty twenty for you?
2: Well, um, it was tough because um, a lot of the Areas where we represent clients were really badly affected by COVID. So obviously, live music, uh, obviously, you know, film production, TV production. So when your clients are doing it tough, that is pretty tough. And, and you know, I had um all, all of my staff you know, working remotely and all of whom had different challenges, you know, some of them lived alone, some of them have young children, Um, and and all of that was was really tough. But, you know, we uh, thankfully um, got through that. Um, Our clients predominantly got through that. We didn't, you know, my goal in that year was to not lose anyone. I wanted to emerge on the other side in hopefully better times with all of my team intact. And I thought my primary job was to make sure that my team, who all have commitments of their own, could, could you know, keep their jobs. And luckily we did that. And that was incredibly satisfying. Mm. And I think in the end, uh, looking back, that year turned out to be better than it ever felt at any point during the year and, you know, um, we, have been inc- extremely busy, uh, ever since.
0: Mm. And would you say that, um, I guess not only the music industry, but the creative industry as a whole, would you say it's back in full swing by now or it's still got a little bit of a way to go?
2: I feel, I think it's got a little way to go, you know, there are still, um, there are still tours being rescheduled. There are still shows being changed and, 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 you know, you can't blithely ignore the fact that a lot of clients made no money for two years or or lost their primary source of income. But, you know, a lot of artists who couldn't tour took the time to make records or, 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 or attend to other aspects of their business. And, um, you know, I'm sure that there are people who have, um, you know, really, really struggled, but but most of our clients, I'm happy to say, are emerging in good shape. Mm, That's good to hear. Yeah.
1: My next question would be, while we're talking about artists and how difficult it's been for them to sort of, for some of them to get back up on their feet and not have that income would be, you know, how can the law support artists that are going through this recovery and this growth?
2: So... I think that this, that that the way I think about this is I think about this uh, the same way that I did pre-COVID as I do, you know, during and post-COVID or if we're post-COVID, who knows. Um, (laughs) And that is um, nobody ever got into a band hoping to meet a lawyer (laughs) or an accountant and... So what our job is, is to help along with other members of an artist team, I'm talking about music now, it's not that dissimilar in film and TV, but our job is to um, help attend to the business aspects of an artist's career so that that is all rock solid and so that they can uh, bear the fruits of their labour and put structures in place so that they can get on with doing the thing that they actually want to do, which is writing songs and making records and playing live uh, and not worry about the kind of financial or business aspects of their business. So that has always been our job and that remains our job. And of course, coming out of COVID, as I said, some of our clients have had pretty tough financial circumstances and we're um, extremely aware of that. And we, we, you know, but but we we have spent many years knowing that we are gonna do work for um, clients who, who are starting out and don't have a lot of money and who, and that could change very, very quickly. So we're always trying to build relationships with artists and um, be sympathetic to their financial positions and be open and transparent about that and give them the time that they need to pay us in the hope that we'll be on their team, uh, you know, through much better days for them.
0: Mm. Yeah, and that's good. Yeah. And look, I think uh, it is really important to support those up and coming artists. And I guess, um, you know, that sort of speaks to the pro bono sort of obligations, I'd say that we have, but um, it's very much something that you seem to be passionate about um, outside of that sphere. Um, something that I did want to ask you, though, which is probably more in line with what, um, you know, you work on is, you know, recently we've had the, you know, the phenomenon, so to speak, of people being cancelled. And look, I'm not going to go into the semantics of being cancelled here, but mm-hmm. basically, let's just say cancelling is is poor online behaviour, yep. right? um what is, what is the impact of an artist's poor online behavior you know when for example they get dropped from a festival how does that sort of work in the in the legal back end there if so you can speak to that
2: long before the idea that someone might be cancelled was a, you know was a kind of common sort of cultural theme Long before that, most properly negotiated commercial arrangements that deal with people in the public eye had reputational clauses in them so that if um, an artist or an actor or someone that was endorsing a product um, suffered reputational damage that could reflect badly on their commercial partner, whether that be a music festival or a product or whatever... Then um, typically the uh, commercial partner could terminate that agreement. Likewise, often with, with an artist with some bargaining position, that they had a reciprocal right. If the um, say the brand suffered some kind of controversy, that meant that the artist no longer um, wanted to be associated with them. So that that's nothing. That's nothing new at Mm. at all. Um, As I said, that's what you would see in properly negotiated contracts. Not all contracts are properly negotiated. And so there are certainly circumstances now when, um, uh, say, a festival or a brand will drop someone who is experiencing reputational issues, even if they don't have an explicit right to do that. And that is a practical calculation where they say i don't want to work with this person anymore and even though i don't have the explicit right to terminate them under the agreement i'm going to do it anyway because i think they won't sue me because i think that will mean that whatever controversy it is that they are involved in will just run longer and will be subject to more scrutiny because when they're doing that court case, they'll have to talk about why we terminated. And so brands or festivals often take the practical decision that I'm going to get rid of them and they won't do anything about it because what they want to do is is, is disappear. And, and often um, that tactic or that approach works. But, you know, one day it may not. One day somebody might seek to terminate because there's some social media controversy and they may not have the right to do it. And, and, um, whatever your kind of moral views about whatever the issue may be at the time, um, they may have a legal problem for terminating agreement that they didn't have an explicit right to terminate. So, um, those issues will always be case by case issues, but certainly there is a view, um, there is a prevailing view that you can get rid of somebody if they have been determined to behave badly and practically that might work and legally that might not work
0: hmm. interesting the fact breakdown. That
2: it's a prevailing kind of view within the culture does not necessarily mean that that's what the agreement says hmm.
1: yeah because you know after i started studying law i was thinking you know how does cancel culture have implications because it is tarnishing one's reputation and then to see you break it down like that it does make a lot more sense with the practicality of how it works in real life
2: Mm. yeah in the same way that you know and I'm, i'm not talking about any specific cases where you know allegations are made against a person and and um kind of commercial partners of that person act as if those allegations have been proven when that is not being the case. And it's an incredibly complicated area. But, you know, typically, um, the contracts that are in place are not that complicated. But in any legal work that you do, there is always a practical calculation that goes alongside the legal advice that you give and, and clients will often take calculated risks. And, you know, maybe those risks will work out for them and maybe they won't.
1: Hmm. Yeah,
0: interesting. interesting. But I guess speaking more towards the legal side of the entertainment industry, would you say that the law was prepared for COVID-19 when it, when it um, reared its ugly head um, way back in 2020? Like, were the contracts able to operate in the way, um, you know, that would work within COVID? For example, insurance contracts, for example, um, you know, uh, equipment hire. Although I would say uh, Laneway missed the brunt of COVID just I was in attendance yes. in 2020, uh, and you guys got in quite <laughs> right before everything went, went I remember that. But,
2: um, look, most, most contracts, commercial agreements have force majeure clauses where, which means, you know, when unanticipated events, um, make it impossible for parties to fulfill their agreements, there are ways to unravel it. Um, so Of course, um, nobody anticipated COVID-19, but lots of contractual arrangements anticipated some unknown problem. Uh, Again, there's the legal aspect and there's the practical aspect. And the practical aspect of that is that the music industry and the entertainment industry are small industries. People rely on their relationships Uh, During COVID, everybody knew that everyone was in a tough spot and people were pretty accommodating in trying to work out uh, common sense solutions to the problems that everyone faced because they all knew that when this ended and hopefully it would end, everyone would need to deal with each other again. So in my experience, um, everybody behaved in a manner that one would not necessarily expect participants in the music industry to behave in happier mm-hmm. times. Uh, people were a lot less ruthless and um, that's to everyone's credit. And I'm sure that there are people who have got different stories to that, but my kind of predominant view was that everybody just worked together to try to minimize the damage in an incredibly tough time. Mm-hmm. Definitely.
1: And you know, while we're talking about the music industry, something that's always been in the news or at least pre-COVID times was the topic of sniffer dogs, um, you know, drug dogs and lockout laws. So I guess my question was how do you think over-policing had an effect on music show- shows and is having one now that they're you know, sort of being reintroduced again?
2: So they're not areas that we deal with a lot. You know, we're commercial lawyers, so... Um, If you owned a venue in Kings Cross and you were, you know, concerned about aspects of the lockout laws, you would talk to a liquor licensing lawyer or a criminal lawyer or or someone like that. And likewise, um, you know, sniffer dogs at festivals, um, that's a policy issue. You know, are the police, you know, why do the police take sniffer dogs to festivals where young people go and they don't take sniffer dogs to the Australian Advertising Awards? I don't know. Um, Maybe because it's always easy to demonize young people, or maybe um, there are good faith concerns about safety. So, you know, there are industry lobby groups who work on those kind of policy issues, and very rarely do lawyers such as us get involved in those because you know, whether there will be sniffer dogs or pill testing at your festival, they're not commercial legal questions, they're questions of law and policy and and uh, there's very little that I, as a commercial lawyer, can do on the day of a festival if the police turn up and, you know, seek to exercise rights that they have that maybe I don't think are that great, you know? Mm. Yeah. Yeah, makes sense.
0: Uh, thank you. Um yeah, it is interesting as a as a young person who attends these things to be confronted with such heavy policing. But yeah, more on a on a you know sort of personal opinion level, I think. But yeah, in that sense, um thank you for your answer and I'll uh, move on to something that I've actually wanted to ask you as well. Um and that is like sort of in relation to know your big international players in music you've got your big like record labels um, from the States and do you ever feel like um, there is like different sort of positions of power when it comes to negotiation Um, or how do you just more generally deal with uh, with larger corporations um, you know from overseas
2: so I've got pretty strong opinions on this Um because I've always represented artists. And so I've dealt with major label, you know, multinational record companies, my whole life, um, my whole professional life, not when I was six. you know. <laughs> um, and, you know, unless you are a star, most record deals are heavily weighted in favor of the record company. And that's because the record company is making typically a pretty significant investment in an artist and they want the opportunity to make a good return for for that investment. And the thing I'd say about that is, is because artists are well known and they have a profile, it's a very well understood idea that, you know, record companies have the power and they've got the bargaining position, but you know, Um, the idea that the person who invests the money makes the rules is basically how every industry works. You know, if you're a startup and you want venture capital investment, you know, and you do not have 10 venture capitalists trying to invest in you, then the person that wants to give you the money is going to make the rules about the basis on which you get that money. It's the same in film financing. It's the same in in, in all sorts of industries. It's the
0: exact but, same as, as primary school, my ball, my rules and handball.
2: Exactly, exactly. But, you know, the, the greatest power that an artist has is the power to say no. And so someone can offer you uh, a record deal where they're going to invest a whole lot of money in you but it is not otherwise in your favour and you, you don't have to do it. And even though I represent artists and I'm sympathetic to artists, I'm also less sympathetic to the idea that artists are treated badly in record deals because no one ever kidnapped an artist Mm -hmm. and made them do a record deal. They all did it because they thought that the investment that they would get would deliver them a benefit that made the things that they gave to get that investment worthwhile and sometimes they're right and sometimes they're wrong. And my job is to uh, twofold. One is to negotiate the best deal that I can get for the artist given their bargaining position. And my second job is to make sure the artist understands the, the deal and the implications of the deal and where that deal sits in the market so that they can make an informed decision about whether this is right for them or not. And if they make an informed decision, then you know, you buy your ticket and you take your ride. And um, uh, no artist has ever said to me that things didn't work out at my record label because I didn't make a very good record you know it's always i didn't get priority or they buried me or they didn't spend enough money on me or uh, the producer was terrible and you know there are artists who have made really really great careers signing to major labels and there are artists who have made really really great careers um, saying no to everyone and doing their own thing and um, as an artist what you should try to do is educate yourself as best you can and make an informed decision about uh, what you're going to do and understand that even with all the information that you can get, maybe it'll work and maybe it won't.
0: Mm.
1: Definitely. And I think that advice is so applicable to everyone in like everyday scenarios as well.
2: Yeah. Like if you get offered a job at a big law firm, you might get more money than you can get anywhere else uh, and you might have to work incredibly hard to do that and you, you, maybe it also gives you prestige and maybe it also gives you opportunity and maybe those things are the most important things to you or maybe the most important thing to you is eating dinner with your partner every night at a sensible time and you're prepared to take less money to be able to do that. And everybody's mm. got to make their own decisions about uh, whether that's in pursuing a career in the arts or the law or anything else.
0: Definitely. Mm. 100%. Yeah, it's, uh, it's good life advice, I'd say. Um, another, yeah. I'm Dr Phil, basically. <laughs> another gem from the bar podcast. <laughs> uh, I guess the, the final thing that I want to ask you, and again, this is more of a, of a hobby thing than a law thing. I think we have covered the legal side of things quite extensively. Mm. But um, in regards to what we were talking about before in, in the sort of differences in negotiating power between big uh, labels and smaller artists, do you think like the rise of technology and websites such as SoundCloud um, you know, and the cheapening of, of, uh, of technology that's needed to record effectively has so- somewhat leveled the playing field, or at least brought the record labels down from sky high to maybe, you know, the, Burj, the Burj Khalifa, yeah. maybe like a, a little bit less down. So, yes, and no. So, um, in
2: 1992. Uh, say, when I started my law firm, right, there were enormous barriers to entry if you wanted to put out an album. So uh, you had to go into a studio to make that album and that was typically pretty expensive. Then you had to get um, your album manufactured, whether on vinyl or CD or whatever, and that's pretty expensive and you had to actually get someone who would do it. And then you had to find someone who's prepared to distribute it which was not easy to do. Like, there's gatekeepers there. That's very hard to do. And then if you can find a distributor, maybe the shops that they sell to want to put you, maybe they're prepared to give you some shelf space and maybe they're, they're not. And so, and also the only way that you could get attention apart from playing live was to get played on the radio and there's gatekeepers there, and there's maybe two TV shows that you could get on, and there's gatekeepers there. And so there is really enormous physical barriers to actually making and putting out a record. Today, almost all of those barriers are gone. So uh, you can use GarageBand to make a record at home, and that will cost you nothing, and you don't need to physically manufacture CDs because, of course, nobody buy CDs anymore (laughs) and you can go to TuneCore or uh, DistroKid or other online services and you can get your music onto Spotify and Apple Music and Tidal and if anyone ever listens to Tidal. (laughs) And, And you can do that at a really small cost and you can promote yourself via social media and the the traditional media gatekeepers of radio and television are far less important than they are today. So you can do all of that, but the biggest challenge now is, will anybody know or care that you did all of that? And that's the hard bit. Like, I don't have the precise figures, but the amount of uh, albums released every week in 2022 is many orders of magnitude greater than the number of albums that were released 30 years ago. And Mm. so I can very easily record, release and promote my opus and maybe it'll become the biggest thing in the history of the world and maybe it'll get streamed once by my (laughs) mum. And so uh, personally, I prefer a world... Where you can do it all yourself, and at least you've got a shot. Mm. Um, and so it is practically easier now than it was then. But are your chances of success any greater now? Probably not. But you know, um, in any field, in any competitive field whether that's music or acting or sport or anything, like it's really, really hard to succeed and most people don't. And nobody succeeds unless they're really good, really, really good, but being really, really good is no guarantee of success. So it's really hard to have a career in the arts, but I think it's really great that a significant number of those barriers have come down but I don't think that actually increases your chances of success. It increases your chances of being able to, in a cost effective manner, make the art that you wanted to make. And that's the only bit that you can control in mm. the end to make the art that you are compelled to make. Mm. And then all the commercial considerations are you know, you can work really hard on trying to make your art commercially successful, but there's no guarantees there. Yeah. Mm definitely yeah it's all about the art
0: in it of itself isn't it now
2: yeah
0: I feel like yeah hey, well, it,
2: you know there's plenty of records that I think are the greatest records ever made that nobody bought you know that's yeah. the that's that's been the case since time immemorial. you mm-hmm. know yeah
1: definitely well, thank you for that Brett um we're sort of done with the questions but we were wondering is there anything else you would like to discuss something you're passionate about
2: the only thing that's I've got to say, you know, I presume your audience is an audience of, of young lawyers. And yep. what what I would say is it's a really great profession to be part of. It's um, something that I've really enjoyed. I think that the and continue to enjoy, it. I think that the opportunities of the kind of work that you do are really diverse and I think I would encourage people uh, to try to do something that really you love, and I make no judgments about what that may be. If if you love making as much money as possible, more power to you. Go for it. Mm-hmm. Um, but you will spend a lot of time at work, and you'll probably spend more time at work than you will spend, you know, with your partner or your friends or your children or surfing or whatever it is that you love. So so if you're going to put in those hours, do do something that you really want to do and that you find rewarding. And and also, you know, don't buy into some of the stereotypes that exist about lawyers. You don't have to be a jerk. You don't have to be aggressive and rude and mean. And it doesn't actually make you better. Mm. To be smart and sensible and kind and to treat your fellow practitioners with respect makes you a far better lawyer than the people who think that uh, they're just going to show how much of an asshole they can be and all that is doing is masking their own insecurities. So that's the, my final point. Mm. on this podcast
0: well there's the real wisdom gem of, of that of of this episode today i think that that was actually very cool it
1: was very wise i almost felt like i was in a bit of a, in, in a like you know informative speech
2: very wise <laughs> thank you for sharing uh, that with us weddings parties
0: anything <laughs> <laughs> um well that that it's been fantastic chatting to been. you today um you know i've as I said before, I have a very strong interest in this area of law, so it's been mm. cool to chat about it, uh, even just briefly. And uh, and it's it's really cool, the work that you're doing as well, um, being based out of Newtown as well, which is really, really cool. Um, you know, it is it is quite the, the cultural sort of icon of Sydney that mm. um, all of us young people think it is. Great music, um, great
2: food, great art. Cairo Takeaway. Who wouldn't want to work near Cairo Takeaway? Exactly. <laughs> okay.
0: well Well,
1: thank you for your time today Brett um my pleasure
0: thanks for inviting
1: me thank you no
0: worries yeah it's been as I said lovely chatting to you and uh and we we look forward to seeing where you go next
2: thanks probably just the same places I've already been
0: (laughs) well look who knows what artists you could uh represent beyond what you already have which Mm. we haven't actually listed Oh, we did in, we the, have in the intro.
2: I,
1: I saw, I think you used to represent Empire of the Sun maybe. Was that in the past? Well, or? we
2: did We did represent Empire of the Sun for quite a long time. They're not um, active, I think. No, but I love so, them so yeah. much. Yeah, yeah. Luke uh, Luke's a really great guy. He's a very uh, interesting guy. And we, we represent Luke and Sleepy Jackson before Empire of the Sun. He's a, he's a great artist and a wonderful, wonderful guy. Yeah. So, yeah, they're so, a great band. Such Fantastic. a good
1: insight
0: as well, yeah. Yeah, I know. Love a lot. They're, what, mid-2000s? Yeah. Stuff you see on Rage. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you very much, Brett, for um, being on our show today. It's been very lovely to chat to you. Um, I've learned a lot of interesting things about music and the law, um, and we're very grateful for your time today. I've been Parina. I've been Brayden. I've been Brett. And uh, we'll see you next week at the happiest happy hour.